morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Let me ask you something as we start out this morning. If you could heal somebody, I mean really heal them. I'm not talking about the healers we see today that you know cure people of sinus headaches and lower back pain. I mean if you could really do an organic healing, if you could take a disabled person and make them well, you would think that would be something that everybody would rejoice in. Especially the person who received the healing. It'd be something you would think everybody would be thankful for. But as we're going to see in our text for this morning, Yeshua's healing of the lame man causes a lot of controversy. And even the man who He heals doesn't, is not thankful at all. This guy's a scoundrel. There's just total ingratitude here. Can you imagine being healed of a 38-year disability and not even being grateful for it? Not even knowing who did it or seeming to care who did it? Well, this morning we come to chapter 5 in our study of this fourth gospel. And we see a decisive change take place in this chapter. Up to this point, Yeshua's signs and miracles were turning people to faith in Him. When Yeshua turned the water into wine, the text says, This beginning of His signs Yeshua did in Canaan of Galilee and manifest His glory and His disciples believed in Him. He performed these signs and it caused people to believe in Him. And when our Lord went to Jerusalem and He cleansed the temple, He also performed a number of signs there which caused belief in His name. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name observing the signs which He was doing. So they're seeing these things, these miracles take place, and they're, they're placing their faith in Christ. Nicodemus, though he didn't come to faith in the chapter, in chapter 3, he is convinced that Yeshua came from God because of the signs he's doing. This man came to Yeshua by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with them. So we know that you come from God because of these signs you're doing. And the royal official who received the miracle that resulted in his faith in Christ when his child was healed. And John 4.35 says, So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Yeshua said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed with his whole household. Now this makes sense. You know, if you saw a miracle take place, and again, I'm talking about real miracles. I'm not talking about these sham things that we see going on today. A real miracle would get your attention, wouldn't it? You see someone who's blind and all of a sudden now they can see. You see someone who's lame, missing a limb maybe, and now that limb's back and they can function normally. Notice what Mark says in Mark chapter 2. Maybe you remember the story, this group of guys cared enough about their friend to try to get him to Yeshua. All right, They couldn't get him near because the crowd was so big, so they climbed up on the roof of the house and ripped the roof off and let their friend down through the roof. Now that, that's some good friends, okay? They knew their, their buddy had a need and they were going to try to help him any way they could. The text says, I, so he comes down through the roof and Yeshua says, do you get up, pick up your pallet, and go home? And he got up and immediately picked up his pallet. He went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Do you understand that when Yeshua said, take up your pallet and walk, 
that the guy didn't lay there and say, yeah, I think I do feel a little stronger. Let me, let me see if I can move. Yeah, look at my toe is moving a little bit. No, he got up, he picked up his pallet, and he just walked out. And the crowd's just left wondering, how do we explain this? The awestruck clouds were, crowds were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I bet they haven't. You know, Yeshua makes this claim to be God, and then He backs it up with things like this. Supernatural power. That sets Him apart from every other religious leader, every other religious teacher there is. He claims to be God, and He supports the claim through these public miracles. So the miracles are described in the fourth Gospel. They're not simply there to wow the crowd, so to speak. They're there to show the supernatural power. They're there to prove this, the deity of Yeshua, to prove His Messiahship. As people saw these signs, they believed. But suddenly, when we reach this fifth chapter, the Lord's miracles actually precipitate intense opposition and persecution. There's no wow. There's no, well, look at this. It's like, let's kill this guy. In this fourth gospel, the entire flow of persecution against Yeshua starts from this story we're going to look at this morning, the one that Dan read of the man's healing. And what has to strike us odd as we look at this chapter is there's a very important word missing that we find up to this point used quite a bit. The word believe does not appear at all in this healing story. Nobody believes in this story. The exact opposite happens. They, they get angry. They're upset. They want to kill him because of that. So let's look at this story. So after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. Now, after these things, that is the things that had gone on in Cana of Galilee. You know, we really can't be sure how long after this incident in Cana that this occurred because this temporal indicator is really nonspecific. Kostenberger says that after this, of verse 1, could have been as long as a year and a half after the healing of the Galilean official son. See, we just don't know. We really don't know how long it's been because in this Gospel, Lazarus is not primarily concerned with the chronological presentation of Yeshua's life. Some believers get hung up on that. That's not what he's trying to do. His desire, among other things, is to reveal and confirm the evidence for his messianic claims and the divinity of Yeshua. So we don't know how long, but sometime after that, he goes down into Jerusalem. He said there was a feast of the Jews. What feast is it that he's talking about here? We don't know. Nobody knows. If they know, they're guessing. If they think they know, all right? Because there's nothing in the text to identify the feast. Now, I've read some arguments that people are trying to. And listen... Lazarus doesn't tell us what feast because it's not important to the text. All right? He tells us he went to the feast because he wants us to understand why he's in Jerusalem. He's there for a feast. Doesn't matter what feast. I would, if I had to guess, I would say it's probably one of the pilgrim feasts that attendance was mandatory by Jewish males. It was either Passover, Pentecost, or Tabernacle. But that's not important to the text. He just wants us to know there was a feast. That's why he's in Jerusalem. And so he says he went up to Jerusalem. Now looking at a map, you would say he went down to Jerusalem, wouldn't you? But 
In Scripture, someone always travels up to Jerusalem. It's the holy city. One of the reasons, it's located in the mountains. It's 2,600 feet above sea level. But also, I think this is a metaphor of preeminence. Jerusalem, because of the temple, because of it was the dwelling place of God, it was the navel of the earth. It was the high place of the earth. So when you went to Jerusalem, you went up to Jerusalem. Now he says, there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. Any guesses to why this is called the sheep gate? This is the gate in Jerusalem through which the sheep were brought to be sacrificed. Boy, that makes sense, doesn't it? Now, that's deep. Took a while to dig that one up, okay? But, but that's what it's for, all right? And you can see it's right up there on the, <clears throat> on the eastern wall just north of the temple. This sheep gate is mentioned several times in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1, verse 32, and 1239. That's basically all you're going to find about it in Scripture. But we're told that the sheep gate is is by a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda. Now, here's the pool up there. You can actually see it on the map. It's a lot bigger than you may think. This pool consisted of two adjoining pools with an overhead cover that was supported by five columns. Four of the four corners, four at the four corners, and one in between the two pools. The pool may have been used for swimming. Since the Greek word for pool... Columbethra is a common word for swimming pool outside the New Testament. So, their people were probably swimming in this thing. Keener says, the pools were apparently as large as a football field and 20 feet deep. So, we're not talking about a little backyard swimming pool here. These were big, big pools. Now, skeptics of the, skeptics of the Bible use the lack of archaeological evidence of this pool mentioned here. It's only mentioned here in the fourth gospel to attack the accuracy of the Bible. You know, they want to do anything they can to attack the accuracy. Well, then something happened in the 19th century. The pool was actually discovered in Jerusalem. William Henderson writes this, After much guesswork with respect to the identity of this pool, its site has finally been established to the satisfaction of most scholars. The pool, or in reality the reservoir which formed it, you know, it's a big thing, was laid bare in the year 1888 in connection with the repair of the Church of St. Anne in the northeast Jerusalem. A faded fresco on the wall pictures an angel troubling the water. It appears, therefore, that by the early church, this pool was viewed as as Beth Zeteda. In the time of our Lord, it had five porticos or covered colonnades where the sick could rest, protected from inclement weather. Now, the manuscript evidence lists as many as four different names of this pool, with the earliest manuscript citing Bethesda. So there was a lot of controversy over what's it actually called. Well, in 1960, this earliest reading was confirmed by reference in the Copper Scroll of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In column 11, line 12, they found out, you know, we we discover a lot of things through archaeology, and through the Dead Sea Scrolls and through the translations there, they find out, yes, this is Bethesda. All right, that is the name of it. Now he says, now notice he says, now there is in Jerusalem. Lazarus makes reference to a site in Jerusalem in the present tense. When he's writing this, he says, there is in Jerusalem. Now, this no longer stood after the 9th of Av in AD 70 when the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. 
Now, scholars who support a late date, because when you support something, you try to dig stuff to support what you believe in, which is kind of backwards. You should just let the Scripture say what it says and then you know, switch over to believe that. But scholars for the late date for this book, they frequently say that John used the historic present tense to describe past events. Therefore, this verse doesn't prove that he wrote the gospel before the fall of Jerusalem. But D.B. Wallace argued that the present tense in 5.2 is not to be understood as a historical present, and thus provides a significant clue to the early dating of the gospel. Wallace pointed out that the equative verb estin used here nowhere else in the New Testament is clearly historical present. That's how it was used. It's not used that way anywhere, estin. Anywhere. So he says it's hard to believe, from my perspective, it's hard to believe that Lazarus wrote this after A.D. 70 and didn't mention anything about the biggest event for Jerusalem ever. The destruction of their temple, the ending of their priesthood, the, st- the stopping of their sacrifices. He just totally forgot about that when he wrote this gospel. No, that's ridiculous. He wrote prior to A.D. 70. I think that's very clear. I think the evidence is there. But if he did write prior to A.D. 70, then that bothers some people because doesn't fit their theology. All right, let's move on. Verse 3. In these lay a multitude of those who are sick, blind, lame, and withered. What are all these people doing hanging out at the swimming pool? Well, a lot of disabled people would come to these porticos because they believed in the healing properties of the waters. All right, and because these waters got stirred up every once in a while, they just believed there were some healing properties there. D.A. Carson makes the following comment about the significance of this third use of water in John's Gospel that I thought was significant. He says, Just as the water from the purification pots of the Orthodox could neither produce nor be mistaken for the new wine of the kingdom, talking about the Lord making the wine from those purification pots, showing He is better superior to Judaism, and just as the water from Jacob's well could not satiate the ultimate thirst of religious people, the woman at the well, you know, that was Jacob's well, another connection there, who may have looked to genuine revelation, but whose views were widely viewed as apparent. So the promises of merely superstitious religion have no power to transform the truly needy. And I think that's what he's dealing here. He's dealing with a superstition as we get to this third use of water here. Because if you notice, the end of verse 3 there, all the way through verse 4, is in brackets. Okay? Why is that? It's not in the text. Okay? It's not. Now, of course, there's debates about this. Is it in the text? Some text it's there. Some text it's not there. Well, look at the verse. First of all, does it sound strange to you? I mean, where do you read about angels healing people? And think about this, okay, look, look at how the whole thing works. All these people, all these sick people, they're surrounded in this pool, they're hanging out, they're waiting for the waters to get stirred up. Angel comes down, stirs up the waters, then what happens? It's a free-for-all, because whoever's in first gets healed, everybody else, too bad. So guess what happens? The strongest, less sick person there is going to make it to the water first. Everybody else, the sickest people, that's why this guy's been here for 38 years. He's lame, he can't do anything. So, does that make sense that God would heal somebody because they can push their way into the pool first? You get there first, you get healed. Otherwise, too bad. 
Again, the sickest people, they stay sick. Well, the ESV doesn't have a verse 4. If you look at the ESV, you got verse 3, then you got verse 5. And if you're paying attention, you're like, what happened to, what happened to that next verse? Where's verse 4? You know? And people will get upset and oh, this is not the inspired word of God. They took a verse out. This passage, in brackets here, is assigned as a footnote in most Bible translations because there's no Greek manuscript before 8400 that contains these words. So the earlier manuscripts don't have this. And it's marked by an asterisk in over two, over 20 additional later Greek manuscripts showing that the text was thought not to be original. Now, early scribes probably added these statements later to explain the troubling of the waters that's mentioned in verse 7. Because, you know, you read the troubling of the waters, what's that about? Well, maybe this is an explanation. Maybe they thought they'd fill us in on it. But these scribal explanations were probably based on a superstition. They appear to have been common in Yeshua's day. Listen to what Carson says about this. He says, the invalid apparently held to a popular belief that the first person into the pool after waters had been disturbed and only the first person would be miraculously healed. There is no other attestation of this belief and sources roughly contemporaneous with Yeshua. But analogous superstitions, both ancient and modern, are easy to come by. So, it is probably a superstition. I don't think we can find anything biblical that really kind of supports this idea. You know, how eager all these sick people would be to believe these stories that they heard about miraculous healings in a pool. When people are sick, they will do some strange things if they think it will make them well. I know that from experience because I went to an Ernest Angley crusade. And I saw a lot of sick people there hoping that this man somehow had the answer and could fix, fix their healing. And I've shared with you before, I mean, I, I'm thinking this is the, the height of hypocrisy during this crusade, during the healing line. There is a line of people coming up and he's, say baby, and you know, get those cigarettes out, and doing all this little stuff that he does. And in the midst of it, a guy down front has a heart attack. You'd think someone with the gift of healing said, hold on, i got to go down and take care of this. He, they ignored that man. Someone called 911. The ambulance came in through the front doors, went over there. They're working on this guy. They got him on a street. They carry him out right back to the show. And I'm thinking, does nobody else get this? Here's a man who needs a healer. They ignore him. They're healing all these people who are walking up and, you know, have all these mysterious illnesses you can't see and they're walking away being healed. It's just, uh, all right. So people who are sick are prone to just get to something that they think is going to help. So maybe some rumor started about this place. You know, hey, I went there and I felt better. There was probably some lower pools below the surface of the water that gushed water occasionally. And maybe it was a mineral type thing and there were some benefits for some people. So maybe someone said, I was in the pool swimming. Man, my joints felt good. At, you know, so all of a sudden the sick people are just piled around that pool. And they're seeing it bubble up and they don't know what's going on. So they say, an angel must stir this thing up. Now, in case someone is thinking, we can't take verses out of the Bible, that's an attack on Scripture. No, it's not. Okay, First of all, we have thousands of Greek manuscripts or fragments of Greek manuscripts. We have many more copies of the New Testament than any other ancient writing. 
And the difference of time between the manuscript dates and the original is smaller in reference to the New Testament than any other ancient writing as well. More documentation of the Bible than any kind of writing. And the way we arrive at the our reliable Greek or Hebrew or English versions of these texts is we compare them, scholars compare them, with each other in painstaking and complex ways. And when the manuscripts have different wording, we can tell which one's the original. In most cases. And a few places where they can't, there's no significant historical or doctrinal issue at stake. We have a reliable Bible. But textual criticism is involved sorting these out to find out what does this text really say. And for by and far, the textual critics say this: these verses were inserted, not in any earlier manuscripts. You know, and, and when they're not in earlier manuscripts, but they're in later manuscripts, then they figure, well, somebody added this to try to help us out. You know, because the scribes they're writing, eh, they're not going to understand this stirring the water. Let me explain to them. You know, an angel came down, you know, and, and so he fills in the superstition of the day, you know, thinking he's helping us out. All right, verse 5 says, A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. This man's sickness appears to have been some kind of paralysis, resulting in his inability to walk. You think there's any significance to the number 38 here? Well, where is this taking place? It's in Jerusalem, right? That's a prominent number in their history. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 13 at Kadesh Barnea. Yahweh commands Moses to send the men out, one from each tribe, and scout out the land of Canaan in preparation for the Israelite invasion. Go out and search this land. Let's check it out. When they returned 40 days later, only Joshua and Caleb believed they could conquer the land. The others had no faith that God would help them. They're scared. There's giants in the land. We look like grasshoppers in their sight. And they just can't trust God. So the people of Israel, accepting the discouraging report from the ten, cried out against Yahweh and they threatened to depose Moses and Aaron and go back to Egypt. So as punishment for their lack of faith and their open rebellion, Yahweh condemned Israel to wander for 40 years, one year for each day that the twelve men scouted out the land until every man of that generation had died except Joshua and Caleb. When they come to the boundary of the country of Moab on the eastern side of the Jordan River, 38 years had passed and all the men of the first generation had died out except Joshua and Caleb. And Deuteronomy says this, Now the time that it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was 38 years. Until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp, and Yahweh had, as Yahweh had sworn to them. Now, I don't want to push this too far. I don't want to get into allegory. But I think the man at the pool of Bethesda, he's suffering for 38 years due to some unspecified illness. I think there's a comparison here between him and the suffering of the children of Israel for 38 years because of their sin. Yeshua's going to say, this sickness is because of your sin. We know Israel suffered... This way because of their sin. And I think this man in this text, this lame man, represents or is a picture of Israel. Alright, let's go on. John 5, 6. When Yeshua saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Some translations like the NIV say Yeshua learned. There's a difference between knowing and learning. Alright? 
I think the NIV makes it sound like he asked a bunch of questions when he go, hey, how long has that guy been there? Hey, do you know that guy over there? How long has he been in that condition? No. The meaning behind the Greek word used here is that Yeshua knew by supernatural knowledge. Now, we talked about this before. Yeshua knew what he knew by the power of the Spirit. Just like he knew that Nathaniel was sitting under the fig tree, just like he knew that the woman of Samaria had didn't have a husband at the time and it had five, he knew the condition of this man. And he knew how long he'd been there and he knew why he was there. He knew supernaturally through the Spirit. You know, one of Yahweh's attributes is omniscience. He knows everything, which means he knows everything about us. Everything. Look at Psalm 139. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. Oh, that's a good one, isn't it? (laughs) And you can even put tinfoil on your head and it's not going to help, all right? The Lord's still going to know your thoughts from afar, all right? He says, you scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. He knows this man. He knew he had been ill for 38 years and he knows everything about every one of us. The writer of Hebrews says this, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You know, this can be comforting or this can be terrifying depending on how you're living, you know, for the Lord. He knows though. You can hide things from other people. You can hide things from yourself, sadly to say. But the Lord knows. He knows everything about us. Now notice Yeshua's question to this lame man. Do you wish to get well? He's been laying around this pool for 38 years. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of people say the Lord's... I don't know, just giving him a hard time or whatever. Do you think this is a real question? Why would he ask him this? Do you want to get well? Well, you really can't answer that unless you understand something about the culture. You're just reading it and you say, this guy's lame. Of course he wants to get well. Well, let me share with you a story about the blind man from Luke 18 that Yeshua healed. And Kenneth Bailey says this about it. He said, the difficulty with this profession, begging, is that some visible handicap is necessary. A man with one leg or one arm might manage to support himself by begging on a street corner, but a blind man is virtually guaranteed success. At the same time, a blind man, such as the beggar in this story, has no education, training, employment record, or marketable skill. If healed, self-support will be extremely difficult. Indeed, it is not in his interest to remain, is it not in his interest to remain blind? Do you understand that? This, how, if he's healed, how does he make a living now? I mean, he's been begging for a while. He knows how to do it. Certainly the lame man is, is in the same boat as the blind man. What does he do if the Lord heals him? How does he support himself? How does he, I mean, he's been doing this. You know, after 38 years, he probably had a pretty good routine going, right? Same old routine, same thing. And we, we like routine. We're creatures of routine. And so the Lord is genuinely asking him, do you want to be healed? Uh, let me think about that. I don't know. I kind of like my life the way it is. 
James Baldwin said this, Nothing is more desirable than to be released from an affliction, but nothing is more frightening than to be divested of a crutch. You understand that? Some things we just like to hang on to because we've gotten comfortable with them. If he became well, he's going to have to stop begging. He's going to have to whatever, figure out how to make a living now. So I think Yeshua's question is a literal, real question to this man. Verse 7, so the sick, man, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Now obviously, the paralytic believed that only the first person to enter the water after the stirring would experience healing. And I just can't get there first. That's probably the popular idea that arose from superstition. The man's statement that he had no one to help him may have been a veiled request to the Lord to say, could you help me get down to that water? See, I think the invalid had a desire for healing, but he didn't have the means to obtain it. I just don't have the ability to get there. There's people here that are not as sick as I am. I can't get in that pool fast enough. And I see this man as saying, I want to be healed, but I need some help. And I think the only help he's thinking about at this point is, can you stick around and if the water gets stirred, you can help me get in there first? Yeshua said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately, the man becomes well. This has to be shocking to everybody around there, especially the man. I mean, why does Yeshua heal this man? I think this is nothing less than an act of compassion by Yeshua. He knows this man. Remember, we just talked about his knowledge. He knows this man intimately. He knows this guy's going to throw him under the bus. He knows this guy's a scoundrel. He is not thankful. He is an ingrate. But yet, he has compassion on this man, and he brings a healing. Look at Matthew 14, 14. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, and he healed their sick. The word here for compassion is a very strong word. It means to be so moved on the inside that it compelled him to take action on the outside. You know, sometimes we see situations and we say, I really feel sorry for them. That's not this word. This word goes well beyond that. It's to be so moved that we actually do something to resolve the situation. You know, the Lord could have seen these sick, lame, broken, blind people and said, I don't owe you anything. You breathe my air, you walk on my earth, you drink my water. I've given you far more than you deserve. You're sinful, you're unworthy, you're rebels against me. You have no intention of following me. But instead, at the sight of even rebels with needs, Yeshua feels compassion. And the word literally conveys the idea of a heart contracting convulsively. We might say his heart was squeezed by what he saw. He's overwhelmed by the consciousness of human need. Now, remember one thing about Yeshua and the incarnation. He's here to reveal the Father. All right? Psalms 86.15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. That's our God. He's a loving, caring God. And He reaches out to this man and He says, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And here in our text, we have an illustration of His compassion towards a man in misery. Now the pallet was... You know, some say it was a cloth, cushion-like. Others say it was, you know, made of palm leaves uh, webbed together, kind of like. It just 
gave this person something to sit on or lay on so they're not right on the ground. Well, here we see Yeshua speak, and immediately it says the man becomes well. 38 years of disability, and he's healed in an instant. Now normally, when you haven't used your muscles for a while, it takes a while to get them back and to start using them again because atrophy sets in. We don't see any of that here. The man just pops up, grabs his mat, and off he goes. Now the prophets, and here's what, you know, this man should have seen. Here's what the people around them, when they're seeing this miracle, what does it say to them? Well, the prophets had predicted that when Messiah comes, he would heal the lame. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Here was proof for all Jerusalem to see. All the people that are around that pool, Messiah had appeared. Now, let's ask a question. Go back to verse 3. It says, there lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Here's a great multitude of sick people, and Yeshua heals how many? He said to him, one man, get up. Immediately that man, that one man got up and was well. He began to walk. Why? I mean, how do you have this multitude of sick people? Yeshua comes in there and he picks out one man and he heals him. I think the only explanation is the sovereign pleasure of God. He chose to do that. You know, Paul tells us why Yeshua would heal one and not the other in Romans 9. I know right now the Arminians are saying, not Romans 9, don't go there. It's in the Bible, people. You've got to deal with it, all right? Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Yeah, it really says that. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? In other words, how can God love one and hate the other? That's not right. May it never be. And he says, he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. You know, many Christians stumble over this stuff. How dare God? You know, what? He's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. And if you don't like it, that doesn't matter. Okay? When you become God, then you can do what you want to do. But until you create a universe, you don't have a right to say what goes on in it. And this idea of God sovereignly ruling over everything runs from Genesis to Revelation. You know, but when it comes to man, we want to have control, especially when we're talking about our salvation. You know, we want to make sure we got our free will. Well, the Bible is clear that before we're saved, we're spiritually dead, we're blind, we're crippled. Romans 3.11 says, There is none who seeks after God. No, not one. you got to make sure you put that in, because someone's going to say, well, what about no, not one? All right? It's, if you are saved, it's not because you're smart enough. You know? It's not because oh, I'm a lot smarter than my neighbor. No, it's because God graciously chose you. That way, He gets all the glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, he's the one who chooses who gets saved, that no flesh should glory in his presence. He doesn't want man glory. He gets all the glory. It's all about his grace, his love, his mercy. Notice in this text, there is nothing about this man's faith. You know, the faith healers today, if they 
you know, bomb out and they can't heal you of your sinus headache, and they blame it on you. It's your faith. You don't have enough faith. This man had no faith, okay? This man didn't even know who Yeshua was. He didn't have to believe this to happen. He just, it just happened to him. So this miracle, this whole story has nothing to do with faith. He says, now it was the Sabbath on that day. Oh, just a coincidence. This happens to happen on the Sabbath. And yet Yeshua told the man, pick up your pallet and walk. You think Yeshua knew this would rattle the Jewish leadership? Yeah, of course he knew. He purposely brought about a Sabbath confrontation. He could have waited. This guy been sick for 38 years. He could have waited one more day. Right? I'll be back tomorrow and heal you. Or he could have told the guy, get up, but leave your pallet there. Go on home. Come back tomorrow and get it. All right? Don't even worry about it. You won't even need it anymore. You're healed, right? Just get out of here. No. He didn't do that. He commanded him to pick it up and to walk with it because he wanted this confrontation. He was responsible for the situation that followed. He deliberately created it. And more than once, Yeshua used his Sabbath activities to make the Jews consider who he was. He does a lot of healings on the Sabbath. All right? I think here he wanted them to realize that he had the right to work on the Sabbath. Why? Because his father had the right to work on the Sabbath, and so did he. This is the first open hostility toward Yeshua that Lazarus records. In 510 he says, So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Now the Jews here is referenced not to the Jewish people, but to the Jewish leaders. According to the prevailing Jewish interpretation of the law, it was not legitimate to carry anything from one place to another on the Sabbath. All right? Thus says Yahweh, Jeremiah 17, Take heed to yourselves, do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything through the gates to Jerusalem. Now, so you're not supposed to carry anything, right? Violation of this was a capital offense and resulted in stoning. Now, the rabbis allowed for exceptional cases such as moving a lame person. So they had some compassion for people that, you know, were for some reasons. But here's, I think, what we have to get here. Jeremiah and the Lord in this text is talking, I think, specifically about commerce. He's talking about bringing things through the gates of Jerusalem because he didn't want them to go out with their normal commerce on that day. But they had taken the text of Scripture and added dozens of prescriptions and binding commands to the Sabbath day. The Tanakh had forbidden work on the Sabbath, but what's work? Well, the assumption in Scripture seems to be that work refers to one's customary employment. But judging by Mishnah, dominant rabbinic opinion, had analyzed the prohibition into 39 classes of work. At 39 different kinds of work that you weren't allowed to do. And one of them included carrying anything from one domain to another. Except, again, they had some compassion, helping some paralytic. Okay, you could move him if you know he needed to be moved. By Old Covenant standards, it's not clear the healed man was really in conflict with the law at all. Since he didn't normally carry mats around for a living. This is not his employment. This is not his job, all right? 
According, though, to the tradition of the elders, the man was breaking the law since he was in conflict with one of the prohibited 39 categories of work, which they understood. So Yahweh's intent in the fourth commandment was to free people from having to work to earn a living. Listen, that was a hard culture. They worked hard. They didn't sit in an air-conditioned office, you know, and do stuff like people do today. This is hard manual labor, and the Lord's giving them a day off. He's giving them a break from that. So this healed paralytic was not really breaking the intent of the law, but he was violating the rabbinic interpretation of it. So that's the problem here. Verse 11, But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. This man had just been healed after 38 years of sickness, and he throws his healer under the bus. Oh, hey, the guy, the guy told me to do I'm just doing what he was told, okay? The guy, he told me to pick up my pallet. Well, maybe he's approaching this like, if the guy had the power to heal me, he's got the power to tell me what to do, okay? That's looking on the bright side for this guy, which I, I really wouldn't want to do because we'll see later. He's not that kind of a stand-up guy. And also in his defense, you know, think about this. You've been sick for 38 years. All of a sudden, you are perfectly well. And now the religious leaders come to you, and you know you could get stoned, killed for this. So they're like, he's like, mm, I just got, well, I don't want to get killed now. I mean, this is ridiculous. So, hey, that guy, he told me to do it. All right? And so they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? What's strange about this verse? They don't say, who's the man who healed you? They don't mention it. They could care less that this paralytic of 38 years had a miracle. And now, listen, they knew their scriptures when the Messiah comes, he would heal the lame. This man has been healed. They could care less. They don't care about that at all. They totally ignore it. They said, who told you to pick up your pallet? That's all they care about. People, you know what this is? This verse right here is legalism at its finest. If there's a finest to legalism. But that's, you know, the minutia of it. All they care about, you're carrying something. They don't think about, hey, God must have done something here. This is incredible. You're healed. No, it's just like, who told you to do that? Verse 13, but the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Yeshua had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. People, do you really think if you were healed, by some man like this, that you would let him get away without finding out his name or anything about him? I mean, the guy's like, oh well, I don't even know who that guy, just some guy walked up, healed me, and he left. I think I would have found out, you know, especially if you're perfectly well now, you can run, you can do whatever. Jason, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't go too far. I'd want to hang, be close to him just in case something came back, I could know who to go to to get it straightened out, you know? Um <clears throat> Verse 14, afterward Yeshua found him in the temple and it said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so nothing worse happens to you. You know, there would have been, this is a feast day. There would have been tens of thousands of people in the temple during the feast, but Yeshua finds him. Again, no miracle, because, you know, through the power of the Spirit, he can do the miraculous, and he finds the man in the temple. And he tells the man, do not sin anymore. This is a present active imperative with the negative participle, which often is used to stop an act already in process. Stop sinning. 
it appears from this text that this man's illness is due to sin. Now listen, sometimes you're sick and maybe it's a trial from the Lord. Sometimes you're sick and maybe it's just because of your stupidity, ignorance, you know, that you do things that make you sick. Um, but sometimes when you're sick, it's a direct punishment for sin. I don't think that's very popular today, but you know, Paul told the Corinthians, some of you are weak, some of you are dying because of your desecration of the Lord's table. David said that God's hand was so heavy upon him because of his sin that his life juices were drying up. And I believe that, yes, even today, that the Lord disciplines his people for sin through sickness, through ailment. Now, the danger in saying that is that we become Pharisees, and every time somebody's sick, they say, what did you do? What's wrong? We'll see when we get to John chapter 9. That's exactly what they said. They saw a blind man and they said, Hey, Yeshua, whose parents did sin that he's born blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? And Yeshua said, Neither of them. He's born this way for the glory of God. So we can't, you know, be judgmental, but I think we should judge ourselves. And if there's something going on in your life, find out. Is there sin in my life that the Lord may be dealing with? You know, we're forgiven people. Absolutely forgiven. We are as righteous as Yeshua is righteous. We bear the righteousness of God. We're as assured of heaven as if we're already there. We are basically part of the Trinity. we got as much chance of getting kicked out as the, the Lord does getting kicked out of the Trinity. But that doesn't mean the Lord just lets us do whatever we want here without consequences. It doesn't work that way. Okay? When you live a righteous, holy life, you're blessed. And when you don't, there's judgments. Go read Deuteronomy 28. Okay, the blessings and the cursings. And you say, well, that was to Israel. Yeah, I think it was, but I still think that God blesses obedience in this life and He curses sin. All right, let's move on. I just try to tell you that I think sin can cause physical problems, mental problems, emotional problems because of sin. All right, he says, he tells them so that nothing worse happens to you. Stop sinning so nothing worse will happen. What could be worse than 38 years of a illness? Well, it could be a worse illness, or it could be he's talking about perishing forever apart from Christ. Now, these two clauses, stop sinning and something worse may happen to you, cannot be interpreted independently. They're tied together. The meaning is stop sinning lest something worse happen. All right, so it's because of your sin this has come upon you. And so the man went away and told the Jews that it was Yeshua who made him well. Listen, he didn't know who it was. He finds out who it was. He goes right back to the religious leader. Oh, I know who it was now. It was Yeshua. He knew they wanted to find Yeshua because they considered him a lawbreaker because he had blamed Yeshua for the fact that he was breaking the Sabbath. So they knew they wanted him to get him in trouble. And yet he goes, hey, it was him. Clearly, this ungrateful man wanted to save his own skin by implicating Yeshua. In this whole text, there's no expression of gratitude. There's no expression of appreciation toward Yeshua from this healed man. And again, I say this is, I think this is a picture of national Israel. No matter what the Lord does, they just don't seem to care. They just go on in their sin. But we could be maybe even more indignant against this man if sometimes he didn't resemble us, huh? I mean, how often are we ungrateful for all the Lord has done for us? 
We're quick to complain of the slightest thing, but we're not too quick to praise for all the blessings that He's given us. Verse 16 says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Yeshua because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. Alright, persecuting here from the Greek verb dioko, which means to chase, to pursue, to run down. The idea is hostility here. That's why it's translated persecute. It's in the present tense verb. It's continuous action. It means they have, it means they have been continually after Yeshua. Why? Because of his healing on the Sabbath. And from the expression, he was doing these things, we can infer that this was not only the, the only incident where Yeshua did miracles on the Sabbath. And as a matter of fact, if you go back to Mark's Gospel, it's quite evident. There's a continuity of apparent Sabbath breaking here that has greatly offended the Jews. And again, he's not really breaking the Sabbath. There are restrictions that they put on it. In each and every Gospel, Yeshua is accused of violating the Sabbath. So in verse 17 he says, He answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. So Yeshua defends his actions by pointing out that he's merely imitating the Father by working on the Sabbath. See, the rabbis regarded God as working on the Sabbath by simply maintaining the universe. Otherwise, all nature and life as we know it would cease to exist. And as regards men, divine activity was visible to them in two ways. Men were born and men died on the Sabbath. So they viewed that as Yahweh working. See, They weren't like us. You know, we have a natural explanation for everything. To them, everything that happened was because God was doing it. If men were born, Yahweh gave them birth. If men died, Yahweh took them. All right? So they viewed Yahweh as always working, including on the Sabbath. But they didn't accuse Yahweh of violating the Sabbath. Because He had to keep working. You know, He had to keep this thing running. And Yeshua also viewed God as constantly at work. He says, my father is working until now. So he claimed to be doing what God was doing. And he says, and I myself am working. He described his work as coordinate with the fathers, not dependent on it. God did not suspend his activities on the Sabbath, and neither did Yeshua. And that's what he's trying to tell him. See, this is a claim to deity. I'm just doing what my father does. He's claiming that his relationship with the law was the same as God's, not the same as man's. Moreover, by speaking of God as my father, you know, the Jews never said that. It was our father, but never my father. He was claiming a relationship with him that was unique from that of the Jews corporately. Now, it seems to me that this man, as I said, represents Israel. He experiences the power of God in his life, and it has absolutely no effect on him. This shows us, I think, the deadness of man. Healed after 38 years of illness and it doesn't affect him. He's not the least bit grateful for the physical healing. And people, we have to understand, unless God gives us life, we remain dead in our sins. Despite this miracle, there's nothing mentioned about believing in this text. Nobody believes. This is just a confrontation. He does this Wonderful work that only God can do was clearly miraculous. The people around that pool knew this guy. They knew after 38 years, don't think they didn't know him. And now he's standing up and he's walking and everything's fine because this rabbi says to him, get up, take your pallet and walk. They saw the power of God. No effect. You know, and I think this text says to me that as sons of God, 
We should be different from this man. We should be a, a grateful, thankful people. We should be continually offering up the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. We, of all people, should be the most thankful, grateful people you'd ever want to meet. Because we should understand our own depravity and the fact that we deserve wrath. We deserve to be lost for eternity, but God in His grace reached out to us. That alone should make us thankful, despite all the others. And to think that as an American Christian would be ungrateful. It's got to be such a slap in the face to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this text. I think it shows us, Lord, the, the heart of depravity, that no matter what you do, unless you yourself, Lord, change their heart, we just can't see it. We can't grasp it. We can't understand it. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your call in our lives. I thank you that all the glory, all the honor, all the praise goes to you for our salvation. And Father, I pray that we would be a grateful, thankful people, praising, rejoicing, thanking you for all that you give us in this nation. And Father, we pray for our nation. Lord, I know you're in control. That's the only thing that gives me any peace in the political situation we're in. Lord, I pray that you and your mercy would give this country not what it deserves, but that you, Lord, would give us grace. May your church rise up, Lord, and call this nation to repentance. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen.